0: All right. We're looking this morning at Micah chapter 3 as we continue our series um, focusing on biblical justice. In other words, we're using the entirety of the book of Micah as a template to think through all of the facets of a unique view of injustice and justice according to Christianity. And so here in chapter 3... We're going to focus on power and justice. And it's important to keep in mind what has just happened in the book before we read chapter three, which is Micah has finally given us a a little bit of a purview of hope. He's finally pulled back the curtain a little bit and looked past the impending judgment and he's talked about a shepherd who is to come, who is going to lead Israel into a land of peace and plenty. The reason it's important to keep that in mind is because the current shepherds, the rulers of Israel in chapter 3, stand in stark contrast to that good shepherd presented in chapter 2. So let's look together at chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, hear you, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? who tear the skin from my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break up their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at this time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry, Peace! when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the house a wooded height. Let's pray. Father, as we wade through these heavy words this morning, words that are even graphic in their imagery, We pray that you would impress upon our hearts your heart for those who experience injustice. We pray as well that you would guide us in how to think about power in a way that recognizes God as the giver of all gifts, recognizes God as the judge to whom all will give account, and recognizes God as the one who sent Jesus to become our savior. We pray that you would help us Inform us in this area. Teach us this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, again, we see that Micah's words are heavy in judgment. Here, his criticism is strong, his language is fierce, and the outcome is destruction. Now, just... For your awareness by the time we get to chapter four next week he returns again to hope and he'll stay in hope for two whole chapters okay so he's picking up a rhythm and what was a large portion of judgment followed by two verses of hope is now going to be hope tipping the scales in the other direction but not just yet what I want you to notice though is the clear focus of chapter three on the misuse of power And so as it opens, he criticizes the heads of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel in verse 1, because of the way that they use their office. In the same way, you may have noticed in verse 5, he turns his attention to the prophets, those who say that they speak for God, and he criticizes them for their spiritual authority that they are utilizing for their own ends. And then finally, beginning in verse 9, as he returns again to the heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, just as he did in verse 1, he focuses there on the institutional powers that make up the heart of, uh, of Israel, the city of Jerusalem and the temple, okay? And in each place, he denounces them because of their abuse of authority, which he labels consistently here, injustice, Now we are fully acquainted in our day and age with the reality of injustice and its close relationship with the abuse of power. Just this week, a tremendous amount of focus has been on Activision and Blizzard, the video game company, because of a culture of mistreatment and mismanagement, specifically against women that ranges more than two decades. And this is just the newest example. We could make an extensive list of recognizing this place. In fact, most of the people who take to the streets on issues of justice are addressing primarily abuses of authority and of power. Okay. And we see a lot of that that we would resonate with and recognize in Jacob, but I want you to notice out the gate, There is a line that must be drawn and recognized if we're to think about these things biblically and we find it again in verse 1. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? What is the question that Micah is asking there? He's effectively saying, you of all people should know justice. Right? That's the question. He's, he's not asking because he doesn't know the answer. He's challenging them. He's saying, is it not for you, the rulers of Israel, the heads of Jacob, to know justice? Now, just to illustrate what he's talking about here, let's consider the kings of Israel. If you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, kings were required, right after they were um, you know, crowned, to write for themselves a handwritten copy of the book of the law. And they were to read it daily, okay? And so the laws of Israel and the character of the God of Israel was to be constantly engaged in by the rulers of Israel. But this word here for no doesn't just mean information. It's not like Micah just knocks on the door of the judge and says, shouldn't you have gone to law school? Do you not know what the law says? He's saying more than that. Okay? The word here that's used for know is the same word that's used when it says Adam knew his wife and conceived. It's the same word that's used for Israel being known by God in a way that other nations are not. Does God not know there's any other nation besides Israel? Of course he does, but only Israel does he know personally, relationally, fully, in experience. In other words, Micah is pointing out that it is part of the purpose of the offices, authorities, and powers that are given to these rulers of Israel to bring about justice. That's what they're for. That's what they were created for. Okay? In other words, power has a God-intended purpose. Okay. And this is true of all sorts of powers. So remove it from institutions, remove it from authority, and just use the word ability. God bestows on human beings' abilities with a purpose, whether it's talents or intelligence or skills or what have you. If you go as we did last week, all the way back to God's creating of mankind in the image of God, He has given them a commission. All human beings, a commission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to rule, okay, to reflect God's character and mission on earth in the image of God, to reflect that by basically cultivating human flourishing, cultivating a community that reflects the very character of God, okay? And so, what I'm suggesting to you is that God has given you abilities not just to make a living, but to make a community. That God has uniquely gifted individual humans in a way that when we come together, we can do things that we couldn't have done on our own. Just think of your house. How much of the furniture could you have built yourself? How much of the food did you grow yourself? right? We could go down the list. So much of our lives are reliant upon other human beings, and I think we'd all recognize that leads to a greater life. If you had to be farmer and carpenter and tailor and chef and, 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 it becomes a very hard life. In fact, even when you look at the end of time in the book of Revelation, what do we find? Not individuals in their own little personal heavenly cubicles, but a community, a great city filled not just with the people of God, but with God Himself in their midst, a holy community. Okay? That is the design. That is the agenda. And so, part of what God has done in that is He has given gifts and callings and offices that make that possible? Leadership, okay? If you look at the role of the king in Israel, the primary focus of the king was to create a just society, a society where human flourishing was possible for all. In fact, because of that, the Old Testament laws for the king and for Israel put a heavy emphasis on those who are the most vulnerable to forms of injustice to orphans, and to widows, and to foreigners, okay? Why? Because a great way to gauge how just a society is is how it treats its weakest and most vulnerable members, okay? And so there's this great emphasis. And so when he says here, is it not for you to know justice? He's saying, why do you even exist? Why are you the king or the judge or the elder of Israel? What is the purpose of your role? What is your mission statement? And the mission statement is to cultivate the community of Israel in a way that makes manifest the goodness of God. That's the plan. And so here, when he says, is it not for you to know justice, he's not just calling them out for a failure to do what they were supposed to do. He's not saying you're kind of falling short here in their six-month, you know, review. It's a complete inversion. The ones who are supposed to bring about in, or bring about justice are the perpetuators of injustice. In fact, notice what he says there in verse two: "You who hate the good and love the evil." Very obviously, that's backwards. They should be those who love good and hate evil, but they've turned it on its head why? Why? It's pretty obvious. We know the story in every one of these cases for their own sake, for their own benefit, right? They've done so to enrich their pockets, to increase their power, to flex their muscles, to increase their status, etc., etc., etc. Now, let's look at this from a different angle, because Micah does here. As I mentioned in chapter 2, he closes with the image of a shepherd, and a shepherd is a regular image in the Old Testament for leadership. You may remember David's origin as king of Israel was just a little shepherd boy. But also throughout the prophets, the prophets contrast good leaders and bad leaders by speaking of good shepherds and bad shepherds. And so by the time we get to Jesus and he talks about himself being the good shepherd, he's drawing from a long tradition of thinking about how leaders should be. Okay? And so the good shepherd, as Jesus says, gives his life for the sheep. Right, The good shepherd exists to serve, protect, nourish, and lead the sheep. But notice the image of these leaders that is laid out here uh, in verse two by Micah. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear (coughs) the skin off my people and flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. What is this? It's cannibalism, right? Jesus says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And Micah says, you so-called shepherds are devouring the sheep. You're consuming them. You're destroying them. You're making yourself fat on the destruction of God's people. That is what's happening here. Now notice verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Now, just as we saw last week, there is a poetic justice, or uh, if, if you're familiar with the theological term, a lex telonis. Lex telonis comes from an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, the punishment fits the crime, and we see that here instead of them hearing the outcry of those that they oppress, they've been deaf to the needs of the poor. In fact, they are the cause of the needs of the poor. God says, I'll no longer hear you when you need me. Okay. And so notice he says effectively that judgment is coming and it's inescapable because I will not hear your voice in the same way that you did not hear the cries of your victims. Then, he turns himself to the prophets. Now again, if you read the Old Testament, you will discover that the prophets, Isaiah, all the way through Malachi, one of their primary focuses is in calling Israel to repentance. And specifically, in calling the leaders to follow the ways of Yahweh and not the gods of the other nations, to pursue justice and not injustice. The things that Micah says in this book are not foreign to the other prophets. In fact, really quickly, listen to this. This is in the opening chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter one, verse 17. If we wanted to ask what is Isaiah's concern about the people of Israel, listen what he says here in Isaiah 1:17. Okay, we'll go back to verse 16 for context. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Sound familiar? Okay, and I could do that with every single one of the Old Testament prophets, except maybe Jonah, because he only says six words to people in the whole book. Everything else he says to the Lord, okay? Uh, It is a major emphasis, and we find it here in Micah as well. And so if we ask, what is the purpose of a prophet— A prophet's purpose is to represent God and call Israel to repentance. So who are these prophets that Micah speaks of so despairingly here in Micah? Simply, we would call them false prophets. They're people who self-identify as sent by God, but they weren't. They're people who say, thus says the Lord, and then says their own thoughts and their own words, And they're people who are not seeking to bring about the glory of God, but their own glory. In fact, look at the picture that's painted here. Thus says the Lord, verse five, concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something eat, but declare war against him to those who put nothing in their mouth. Okay. Now that word peace is a key word for the prophets, the false ones in the Old Testament, because basically Anytime a prophet comes on the scene from God and says, turn around or judgment is coming, somebody stands up and says, no, 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 peace is headed our way. And so Jeremiah says, woe to those who say peace, peace when there is no peace, okay? In fact, we see that later in the chapter, look at um, the tail end of verse 11. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in our midst, nor no disaster shall come upon us, okay? That's the message of peace. But here Micah amplifies it and he says, they give a message of peace to those who put food in their mouths and those who deny them food, they declare war on, okay? In other words, they are blessings and cursings for hire. You remember Balaam back in the book of Numbers? Balak, the king of the Amalekites, comes to Balaam and he says, hey, there's these Israelites out there and I don't like them. I want you to curse them in the name of God for me. Right? I want you to change their destinies by calling down a curse from heaven. And Balaam says, okay, here are my fees. Right? And the God of Israel gets involved and changes that story quite a bit. But that's like the prophets in Micah's day. Okay? If you'll feed them, they'll promise you abundant blessings from God. But if you refuse, they'll call down curses. Okay? In other words, it's a form of spiritual mafia right? Here, they are taking their spiritual role, and let's recognize when we talk about power and when we talk about authority, connecting yourself with God is always a conversation about power and authority. In fact, we're fully aware in our world that religious institutions, religious power, and religious authority is just as capable of perpetuating injustice. The only difference is that they do so in the name of a higher power, okay, which in some ways makes it worse. And so here they function like a spiritual mafia and they charge a fee up front for the blessings of God, okay? Now, obviously, God is not into this. In fact, as much as they identify as representatives of God, God makes clear that he has nothing to do with this group of people, and so notice their judgment is similar to what we saw with the rulers and authorities. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced. He says, all you seers aren't going to see anything. Okay. And when it says here that they'll be disgraced, how is that going to play out? Because their primary prophecy is peace. Peace. But when judgment comes, they're going to be shown for what they are, fakes, okay? Now, I want you to notice there's a correlation here. He says, to those who do not hear, you will not hear. He says, to those who see, you will not see, okay? But there's also an escalation. There's a relationship between these things. The rulers of Israel lead at God's behest and request and for his purposes, And he says, if you won't do so, I'm cutting you off. In the same way, the prophets say that they speak for God, and he says, if you won't do so, I'm cutting you off. And that continues in verse 9 when he focuses again on the rulers and the leaders of the Israel. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Here he turns to the institutions Right? This is another thing. There are people with power and authority and then there is institutional power and authority that becomes structural, that becomes organization-wide, that becomes greater than the sum of its parts in its ability either to produce good, which is why we need institutions, or to perpetuate injustice. And so he turns his head here and he focuses primarily on Jerusalem, the capital city of Judea, And of the temple, the place, the home base, if you will, for Israel spiritually. And notice he makes the same claim about them. He says, You who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Okay, you can do crooked things, but you need an institution to make straight things crooked, right? The idea here isn't that they've strayed away from what God desires, it's that they've shaped a culture that perpetuates against those desires. It's that they've created a framework that makes injustice natural and even efficient. Okay, and again, I'm going to assume that we know what this looks like. We know that organizations and authorities can build their own power to perpetuate their own desires, fill the cabinet with yes-men, right? Shape the laws to their own benefit work towards covering up and perpetuating a a culture of secrecy around the great sins of their organization. All of that is institutional authority being used for injustice. And so as he turns to these, again, we see that they're not serving their purpose. It says here, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Jerusalem, the name of the city, means the city of peace. And like Isaiah before him, Micah says, no, it's a city of violence. It's a city of blood, right? Zion is the place of God's presence, of God's holiness. This is the place where the very temple of God dwells. And Israel is to be a set-apart and holy people, but instead they are a den of iniquity, right? This is the emphasis. Again, it's not that they're falling short. It's that they've completely inverted their purpose, And so he says, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Notice how there's an interconnectedness of those things. Each one of them perpetuates the other. They're working together to line one another's pockets, to keep themselves in power. This is what's going on. And yet simultaneously, verse 11, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. And so not only are they bringing about their own glory and their own power and their own wealth by stepping on the very people they're supposed to serve, they see that glory and power and wealth as evidence of an eternal destiny. Of an undefeatable safety and Worst of things, they see it as evidence that God is on their side. Micah gives this prophecy during the days of Hezekiah. Okay, that'll become significant in a, uh, for another reason in a minute, but one of the reasons it's important is because Hezekiah was a builder. He extended the boundaries of Jerusalem. He built stuff. He stoked the economy. He did all these good things. In fact, he dug a tunnel to try and protect himself from invaders so that you could come from inside Jerusalem, which was a walled city, a fortress, go underground, travel hundreds of feet through straight stone, and you can walk this tunnel today, to the water source outside the city. Okay? And so the mentality was, we've got this, we are safe, God is on our side, look at the way he's blessing us, we are clearly the people of God And notice what he says, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. I want you to notice two things. One, just like for the leaders who say that they are, or whose role is to hear on God's behalf the cries of the people and do something about it and don't. And so God takes away his word. And just like the prophets, who are supposed to see visions, but instead create their own imaginary propositions, so God says you'll no longer see. So also here, he says, my presence is going away. There will be no Jerusalem. There will be no temple. There will be no Mount Zion. But he says something else that I think is very insightful. Notice the last sentence there. The mountain of the house a wooded height. Here, it's just labeled generically a house. How is it often referred to throughout the Old Testament? The temple is what? The house of the Lord. But here, it's just an empty building. God is already gone. He's already absent. He's already departed. They say God is on our side, but God's already left the building. Okay. Now, here's the point. These rulers, their roles are prescribed by God. They're put in those roles by God. They're gifted in those roles by God. But they start to think that it's their power. And they start to use it for their ends. And they start to use it for their purpose. And so God says, I'm just going to cut you off. I'm just going to disconnect you. We see the same things with the prophets. And here we see the same thing with the institution. They don't recognize that the power that they walk in towards their own ends is God's power. And he says, let's just see what happens when I step back and you try and stand on your own, okay? In other words, their power is a facade. Either God is at work in them or they are working against God and God steps back and it will all fall apart okay? This is justice. This is consequence. But there's a tendency here, there's a tendency to look at all this and to respond and go, all right, so what we need to do is get rid of the powers and authorities that be. We need to tear it all out, down our powers and institutions and authorities. We need to remove the structures. We need revolution. We need these things. In fact, as soon as I read this chapter last night again, I was reminded of this quotation, which I love because this is the type of person I am, um, from, from Denis Diderot, who was a French philosopher. He said, men will never be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. Man will never be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest, which is tremendously French, okay? But it also sounds real close to Micah, doesn't it? Like, you may, be, uh, you may be offended by the language that he uses there. It's like, did you have to put it that way? Which is part of the reason why I like the quote, because I've never forgotten it. It's pretty easy to remember it because it's so graphic. But it does. It sounds like Micah's tone. He says, woe to you who tear the skin off the bones of my people, who break the bones and throw it into a cauldron and cook it in a pot. But there is a significant difference between these two statements. There's a significant difference between these two statements. One assumes that power is irredeemable, always corrupt, always destroys. And that is a huge tendency in our culture's response to injustice right now, to be anti-power, to be anti-authority, to be anti-leadership, to be anti-institution. And a lot of that does stem from the French Revolution and a thinking that wanted to tear the whole world down to try and find freedom. But I want you to notice that Micah does something different. Right in the center of the passage, he talks about the leaders of Israel, he talks about the prophets, he talks about the institutions, but right in the center there in verse 5, he talks about himself. And notice what he says. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets. uh, Sorry, uh, verse 8. But as for me... I am filled with power. Right in the midst of all of this focus on the abuse of power, Micah says, but as for me, I am filled with power. And then notice what he continues to say, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. Here, the solution that Micah presents is not an absence of power. In fact, that's what's happening in Israel. There's a power vacuum, and the power that we see is just a facade. Okay. But he contrasts him, and he says, but I am filled with power. And notice, it really is connected with the God who is powerful. Okay. Now again, although there's a sense here where the, the empowerment that he's talking about is the very spirit of the Lord, right? and that's a unique empowerment. It's a spiritual empowerment. It's God working through the words of Micah so that the words of Micah are truly the words of God. But there's still a lot of similarity between his role and the rulers of Israel. In other words, we need to recognize that uh, Micah's vocation is just a vocation, just like the vocation of king or the vocation uh, you know, of leader or ruler or elder. It is a God-given calling. And just like the natural gifts that God gives in creation, like gifts with a talent towards leadership or an ability to inspire with charisma or these types of things, this gift, the filled with the spirit powerment, empowerment that we see here, is God-given. In fact, if we have to look for a difference, it's that this is rightly oriented and recognized as God's power and therefore focused on justice because he's not just filled with power, he's also filled with justice. So whereas the prophets who preach their messages custom fit for the audience for their own benefit, here Micah, the outsider, can preach a message of judgment to a people that don't want to hear it. And like all of the other prophets of the Old Testament, puts his own life on the line to be faithful to the message that God has given him. Okay. That's why it says at the end there that he's filled with might. You could say courage. This is a true power. The ability not just to do what's beneficial for yourself, but costly for yourself for the sake of the community. And By the way, that's one of the best ways to think about the difference between justice and injustice. Injustice is when you enrich yourself by taking advantage of the community. Justice is when you're willing to even lay out yourself, to impoverish yourself, to pay the cost for the benefit of the community. And Micah really is in that role. You might see him as heavy-handed and judgmental, but his heart, as we've already seen, is for repentance. It's for the salvation of Israel and not for judgment. And that is true power. For one, it's the power here to resist injustice. It's incorruptible. Unlike the other prophets, he is able to stand his ground and he doesn't become the thing that he condemns. And this is the problem with that philosophy that men will never be free until the last king is strangled. Because there's never a last king. It's because the guy who does the strangling stands up and declares himself the new ruler, authority, and power. You see, sometimes what we think is we just need to invert things, so we need to take those who are on the bottom and just put them on the top and everything will be okay, but we've literally done that for the last 300 years unsuccessfully. Okay. And it's because if power is not rightly connected with its source and rightly ordered towards its God-given end, it turns. And so, one of the things that I want you to notice here is that Micah recognizes the God-givenness of his power, of his vocation, of his abilities. The question is not, how can I get rid of power so the world can be just? It's how can I use my power justly? And the first thing you have to learn is that it's God-given. And therefore, like everything else on earth, it is corruptible and sometimes fallen, but it was created good. Okay, Micah sees that. He says here, he doesn't say, I'm powerful because I'm such an eloquent speaker. He doesn't say, I'm powerful because I have lots of money or status. In fact, he doesn't have any of those things, right? He's not part of the upper echelon. He's not part of the accepted community. He is an outsider. And yet he's still powerful. And that should be encouraging to us because here's where I experience this personally. I look at the problems in the world out there and I go, what can I do about it? I'm not a person of power. I'm not a person of status or position. How can I change things? But Micah had none of those things. But he did recognize that his power was from God. And then secondly, because his power was from God, he recognized himself as a steward. And you need to do the same thing. Whatever your gifts are, whatever your talents, whatever your positions, if you're an employer, if you're a boss man, if you become the leader of an organization or the leader of a family, if you become a parent, all of those things are your calling. Even as a citizen of the United States, that is your calling. It is a vocation and it is God given. You could have been born elsewhere, you could have been born elsewhere. God has given you that calling with a purpose, with an intention. Your life is not your own. Your destiny is not shaped by yourself. You don't get to decide what you do with the things that are given. You have been given a calling, a vocation. And like every other human being, the big picture is to use what God has given you and the place that he has given you to cultivate life and not death, to bring about true community and flourishing and not through selfishness destroy what god has created you see the leaders had forgotten that they were stewards of god they saw their role as privilege and therefore something they could use for their own sake they saw themselves as the smartest as the insider as these types of things and they forgot that their not just their gifts but their role their vocation was god given But most importantly here, Micah is able to bring about change. And this isn't very visible in the text. I reminded you a few weeks ago that the book of Micah is a piece of literature. And so it's been edited. It takes the great sermons and prophecies of Micah and intentionally arranges them. And sometimes we get a little bit of detail and we can go, okay, this is when this was given and why this was given and how it was received. But most of the time we can't. This is one of those occasions where we can because in the book of Jeremiah chapter 26 Jeremiah is on the block the chopping block because he's basically said like Micah the temple is going to be destroyed and Jeremiah is prophesying a generation later and all the rulers of Israel say that is blasphemous God's temple is going to be destroyed we need to take his life and somebody in the higher court of Israel steps in and goes hold on wait a minute Micah said basically the same thing a generation ago and Hezekiah didn't kill Micah. He heard him and Judah was spared. And when they quote Micah, they quote this verse, Micah 3 verse 12. And this is impressive, isn't it? Micah single-handedly because he recognizes his gifts are from God and leans into the stewardship he's given, he changes the destiny of a nation. And he stays the judgment of Israel for 120 years. That's the power of God. Isn't that amazing? Okay, and so we need to see power as God-given. And that means calling people to use it accountably. And that's what Micah does here, right? He calls the powers that be, literally, to their true purpose. He holds them accountable. Second, he recognizes he has a stewardship. And like Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, right? He recognizes he has a mission and a personal calling, and God sent him to a particular place. There are places you will live out your life that I will never go that neither will any other missionary or pastor or, or somebody who has the capital P or the capital M vocations. But God sent you there. And he sent you with the same spirit he's given me. He's just given you a different calling, a calling to steward. But there's la- one last thing, okay? The danger in being overwhelmed by the injustice of this world is, is twofold for us. One is to just try and forsake power. To try and throw it out. And that won't address, confront, or change the injustices of our time. It just flees. Okay? Or it pushes powers into the shadows so that they run hidden. And so we say, we don't really have a king while somebody's just manipulating and pulling the strings anyway. Right? Second, the danger is to take on the inverted solution of our time, which basically just means Revolution. We just need to flip things on its heads and then everything will be fine. We need to take the have-nots and put them over the haves. We need to take those who are not and put them over who are. But a Christian response to power is not to forsake it and it's not to reverse it, it's to redeem it. Now Micah here, he has an incredible power, a God-given calling, and a spiritual ability to speak for God in a way that brings about change. But there is a greater power. I want to look at two passages that reference Jesus this morning. One of them you probably know, in fact, I'll quote it up front. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus explains his purpose of coming, and he does so using a particular title. The title is the Son of Man. In fact, if you read the Gospels, it's how Jesus constantly refers to himself, the Son of Man. But where does it come from? It comes from the book of Daniel. And that's what I want to show you. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. That'd be a couple of books to the left. Daniel here is having a vision. Okay, he sees empires shifting the rise and fall of the authorities and powers but then he sees the end of all things and this is what he sees in verse 13 I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like who a son of man he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So what here is the Son of Man given? All authority, all power. His rule is to be eternal and undefeated and universal. And it says that the one who receives that is the Son of Man. Now, I want you to hear afresh the words of Mark, chapter 10. In fact, let's look at the context. Here, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about the way that they are to lead or to rule or to fill out being this community that we're a part of, the church. And this is what he says, Verse 42, he said, Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does Jesus do with all authority, all power and all dominion. He uses it to serve and he came to give his life. Okay. Jesus has the great vocation. He has the very power of God himself and he uses that power to bring life. He uses that authority to lay it down for the sake of those he serves if you understand how you fit into that story. Because I want you to remember, according to the Bible, you were in rebellion against that authority. The ones that Jesus came to serve and even die for were the enemies of God. When you see that Jesus has used his power in such a way to bring about your salvation that he humbled himself, as it says in Philippians 3, and became a servant then it changes the way you view power. And it changes the way you engage in it. Not forsaking it, but redeeming it. Using it to serve instead of to dominate. Okay. And this is what we see in Micah. It's this same power. He's willing to put his life on the line. Being a prophet is a vulnerable place, even though we tend to think of it as being a judgmental place. He's putting his life on the line for the sake of his people. But Jesus didn't just do it for Israel. He did it for us. Let's pray. Father, I know that sometimes we can be hesitant about power and authority. But this morning, I wanna pray with boldness that you would give us places that you would fill us with power and with your spirit, that you would gift us abundantly so that we may use those things for your glory. And even if we can't see the places where you've given us power or authority or influence or privilege or any of these things that we can use to bring about goodness, I pray that we would remember that Micah was an outsider, without wealth, without status, without position, but he had you. We just want to confess this morning, like Paul says, (coughs) that the things we do are not I, but Christ who lives in me, that the life that I live now is the life by the grace of God. But we also want to follow in Paul's footsteps and say, but I did not let that grace languish, but put it to work, leaned into it, saw it as a stewardship. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to be good stewards of our money, of our authority where we have it, of our vocations. As brothers and sisters as husbands as wives as mothers as fathers as citizens as bosses as employees as middle class or upper class that we would see the stewardship you have given us and more importantly that we would see Christ that we would recognize that the way that Jesus changed the world was not by flexing his muscles but by the piercing of his own hand. And was not by bleeding dry his enemy, but bleeding for them. Help us to truly believe, Lord, that the way to resurrection, the way to life is through crucifixion. Help us to follow suit and give us eyes to see change. Micah didn't live to see Everything he said. But you brought about your word because it was yours. And we know, Lord, that no step we take in your name, no word we share, no act of service, no giving of our own life will ever be wasted. But every seed that falls to the ground will grow into a plant and bear fruit. And so we pray that we would give ourselves this morning wholeheartedly to that vision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.